0: All right, let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 6 once again this morning. Seems that every year, in parts of our nation, indeed all over the world, uh, we experience uh, powerful and devastating effects from the weather. Uh, Last week, you probably heard that the Midwest, the South, were hit with Record-breaking cold resulting in power outages and fuel and food shortages and even the deaths of a few people. And we all know about the destruction that's caused by hurricanes and tornadoes, tsunamis, floods, and other weather-related phenomena. But all of this pales in comparison to the total devastation of the world through the universal flood that we just read about In Genesis chapter 6, all of us, I'm sure, or at least most of us, are very familiar with this passage. We've heard it in Sunday school classes since we were little. And nearly every country in the world has some kind of a flood story. And even though those stories may largely be mythological, it's often the case, folks, that myth comes from truth. It's just a perversion of the truth. And what we have here this morning in the Genesis record is the truth from which those flood stories derive. Unfortunately, there are people today who think this is all a fairy tale that never really happened, yet the evidence for it is everywhere if one is willing to observe it with an unbiased mind. But the most important thing to consider from this passage is why Did all of it happen? Why was it necessary? How could God, who miraculously brought the world into existence in the first place, then turn around and destroy it? Well, the bottom line is because of humanity, which he created in his own image, it became so utterly corrupted by sin that God had to wipe it out and start all over again. He was able to preserve the race because of one faithful man and his family that stood in stark contrast to the rest of the world. That man, of course, was Noah, whom the prophet Ezekiel, as he wrote, listed him as one of the three most righteous men of all time. It is through this man that God is now going to preserve the seed of the woman and save the human race. In our narrative, we're going to trace the faithfulness of Noah with the corruption of the race. Now we're told in chapter 7, verse 16, that after Noah obediently entered the ark that the Lord shut him in. The righteous were shut in because of their faith, the corrupt were shut out because of their violence and unbelief. The Lord spares those who put their faith in him alone for salvation, but he must utterly judge those who reject him. So the question to consider this morning is this, are you shut in the ark of God's deliverance and salvation through faith, or are you shut out with those who are condemned? Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are again thankful today for your goodness and your grace to us in that you've devised for us a way to know you personally, where we can escape the condemnation of sin, the corruption and the defilement and the violence of the world. Lord, we know that in our hearts we are like the, the corrupt people whom God had to destroy. We're born that way, and we prove it very early in life because we we sin. And yet, Lord, uh, you look down with favor on one person. You saved the race. In a sense, you saved us because we were in that generation. And, Lord, we're thankful that in this day, because of what Christ has done, we can have a new relationship with God. We can know him and walk with him, even as Noah did. So Lord, help us today to understand your word and to make us application in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want you to notice this morning in this passage is that the faithful are distinguished from the corrupt. We have here the genealogy of Noah in verse 9. And so this begins another one of those Toledoth sections where the word genealogy or generations uh, opens up a new section for us. And the previous narrative story began in chapter 5 verse 1 describing the generations of Adam. And so it described for us the reign of death culminating and the universal depravity of man, and God's condemnation upon the race. But it also traced the godly line of Seth, which represents the seed of the woman, and unfortunately by the 10th generation, this seed was has dwindled to just one family, and that of Noah, and those of course still living, who are related to him. Now the story picks up in chapter 6 verse 9, with the generations or the genealogy of Noah. And this section continues at chapter 10 and verse 1, and a new genealogy of his sons. And it describes for us God's favor or grace upon Noah because he is the last one to walk with God and call upon his name. His righteous character is a result of his faith in God. We have described for us the Lord's communication with Noah, the catastrophic effects of the flood and the preservation of Noah and the animal life as a new beginning after the flood. And so what we want to look here in in these first few verses is that Noah is distinguished from the corruption of the human race by three characteristics. You'll notice here in verse 9 that Noah, first of all, was a just or righteous man. Looked around the world in that day, uh, there were a few left when he was born, and they lived many, many years. But generally speaking, wherever you looked, there was unrighteousness. There wasn't anybody who was living the way God wanted them to. And in verse 8, we have the first mentioning of God's grace because he didn't just wipe out the, the, the human race immediately, but we also have. The, the thought of the first righteous man of the mention of righteousness in verse 9. And this speaks of Noah's character in contrast to the rest of the world of men in which he lived. He was upright in his conduct. He had not become corrupted by the way of Cain. He remained faithful to the Lord. Now, righteousness is always associated with a result of faith in the Lord. It also related to the grace of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, Noah is mentioned there in that great hall of fame of of faithful people. And we are informed that Noah's righteousness was the result of believing what God revealed to him about things that were not yet seen, like rain, like floodwaters. And he thus condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So faith operates with God's grace. He also is mentioned here as being perfect in his generation. Now in the Bible, perfect does not mean that you are without sin. What it means is that you are complete, that you're whole, that you're entire. It means in relationship to God that you are wholehearted, that you are committed, uh, and that results in a blameless life. In other words, a person could not righteously point the finger at you and say you're corrupt like everybody else. They could lie and say that, but they couldn't honestly say that. And uh, uh, the generation in which Noah lived did not corrupt him, did not make him become violent. They did not deter him for standing up before God and for God. His integrity is unmarred in the midst of the evil that's all around him. So he's a righteous man, he is a wholehearted man, and he walked with God. You'll notice next, putting him in the same category as Enoch. Enoch walked with God as well. And this, again, is a word that conveys our our daily behavior, uh, walking with God, our relationship to God, our, our closeness to God. And Adam walked with God in the garden, course before he sinned Enoch walked with God what happened God delivered him from death now Noah generations later he walks with God and he's preserved from death and destruction as well so those who walk with God by faith are not going to be destroyed with the wicked and how we need Christians in our world today to stand out like that from the crowd who walk with God no matter what happens who are wholeheartedly devoted to him among their peers in their generation, which largely is corrupt and very obviously so, and whose righteousness is obvious to other people. We're also told here that Noah had three sons. And then uh, these are, are mentioned here because it will be through this particular line that the promise of the seed back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 will continue and Shem will be the one to carry on that promise of God. Now, look at verse 11. Noah, of course, stands in stark contrast to the rest of humanity. If you note there, the earth also was corrupt before God. He was looking down and he sees the way things really are. God sees all the time. The earth was filled with violence. So these two words kind of describe for us what the world had become like since the time of creation and, of course, the first sin of man. All flesh had become corrupt. That means it was ruined, irreparably marred, spoiled. We might say something like rotten to the core. And It was filled with violence. Men procreated, filled the earth with people, but that procreation also involved violent behavior. This is the way one commentator put it. The cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal right of others, motivated by greed and hate, and often making use of physical violence and brutality. And we can see that in our world today, can't we? But God promised He wouldn't judge the world again in the same way He did at the flood, and so His gracious um, patience is operating in the world today. And the depths of depravity were so severe in that day that God decided that He needs to start all over; that judgment is necessary. Now, we come to verse thirteen. And we find God's provision for the faithful amidst the condemnation of the corrupt. And we first of all see the Lord revealing this to his um, uh, grace, uh, the faithful one, instructions for preparing the ark. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God reveals his will to Noah, to his faithful one. All flesh has come to an end before him means that he is going to remove the breath of life from humanity. That things are so universally violent, he's got to start all over again. And unfortunately, even the animal life is going to be adversely affected by the sinfulness of humanity. So the Lord informs Noah that mankind is going to be destroyed in the earth, and there's a sense in which God is is going to uncreate the world through the flood, as we shall see. God reveals then the means of preserving Noah and his family and uh, the animals of the earth in verse 14. He says to him, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 450 feet, okay, uh, 75 feet wide, and the height, 45 feet. And you shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So a very brief description of what this magnificent uh, ark was going to be, just a cursory description of it. Uh, the word ark is interesting because we only find it in one other place in the Bible, and that's when uh, Moses is preserved in that little basket his mother had made. The word ark is used for that. And uh Uh, generally it's referring to a box-like structure. However, I read that it may also be a word borrowed from the Egyptian, meaning a palace. And so that that would take away the idea of perhaps the way it looked or how it was constructed to emphasizing a place where you can live and where you can be safe. Now, the ark was a magnificent structure for its day. I would imagine that in the uh, at least 1,600 years preceding this time that men had figured out to navigate rivers and seas, and perhaps they built other uh, boats for the purpose of fishing and maybe for trade, but nothing of this size or this structure is recorded in ancient history. We're not exactly sure even what gopher wood is, probably some kind of rosinous or water-resistant wood. Some have suggested cedar. But it was huge. It was 450 feet long. That's a one and a half football fields. And apparently it was built much like a a modern-day barge, only a lot larger than that, consisting of three stories with many rooms, literally nesting places. Now, one may object, Uh, how could you fit all the animals of the world, even in something that was that large? Well, the cubic space would equal about 522 railroad boxcars. How many animals do you think you could fit in that? And we also have to understand that all the varieties we have today derived from... um, much smaller groups, historically speaking. So, for instance, we, how many varieties of dogs do we have today? You only need two to get things started off. So all these things could easily have uh, uh, come into the ark and been saved by the Lord and then branched out into all the varieties that we have today. So there's real no problem of uh, the ark holding this number of creatures and them surviving the flood. Now, further instructions are given uh, down in verse 19. Now, God again repeats that he himself is going to bring floodwaters on the earth, which again, at that time, had never been experienced by mankind. And uh, he repeats that decree here. He alone has the right to destroy what he has created, Only he has the power to withdraw the breath of life that he gave originally at creation. And we once again are reminded of God's word about the forbidden fruit in the garden. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. But who would have thought that things would have gone this bad in creation that God would have to bring about a universal judgment? But the Lord does encourage Noah with a promise in verse 18. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to establish, I'm going to make an agreement with you. I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to show you some things and promise you some things after you uh, after this is all carried out. And that was an encouragement uh, to Noah. Now, we're not going to go into the covenant today. That's uh, for something later. But it does consist of God's promise never to flood the world again, uh, uh, a, a universal type flood, to, est- uh, to establish the government of man that he has the right to take the life of those who take the life of others, and the continuation of the seed of the woman. So even in the depths of human depravity, God determines that will not thwart his purpose in the end. Now, through all this, we have the necessity of obedience. We look at verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. That's obedience. If a person says they have faith in God, they're going to obey what God says. They're going to do what he says. And that's exactly what this man, Noah, did. Noah's obedience is called to attention throughout this text. You'll see it repeated in chapter seven. He did everything that God commanded him to do. He built the ark. Now, I imagine that that was at great cost to himself. Thinking how large that structure was, imagine the amount of materials and labor that went into it. I'm sure he had to hire people to help him to do it, to get it done. No wonder it took him 100 years with all the crude instruments they would have had back in that day. And can you imagine the ridicule to which he was exposed? We're told back in chapter 2, the earth in that day was wa- not watered by rain. It was watered by a mist that came up from the ground, kind of like thick dew. So can you imagine uh, that that he's building this huge barge-like thing? Now, they may have been familiar with sea-going vessels, but there isn't any sea. There isn't any water. He's just building it there out in the middle of the plain or wherever it was. They had never seen rain, so how could he describe what a flood is? And I'm sure they made fun of him, and they, they uh, jeered at him, and maybe they even vandalized the work that was going on. And in spite of all this, he obeyed God. He was faithful to God's word. God said, do this, and he did it. And if he had not done it, he would have perished with the wicked. His obedience was a direct evidence of his faith and his righteousness and his walking with God. All the while, I believe Noah, as he was building the ark, was preaching to the people. (coughs) Peter tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. God says there's a coming judgment. I'm going to Flood the earth with water. The water is going to be all over the uh, earth. And that would have been you know, hard to believe in that day. You know, where is it all going to come from? So all the while he's preaching the righteousness of God, the coming judgment, but nobody would listen to the message. Now, we come to chapter 7. And here we see that the faithful are safely shut in the ark. And the corrupt are justly shut out. In verses 1 through 6, Noah has an invitation. Now, obviously, he's done all the work. uh, But I think it's interesting that in verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. He doesn't say go into the ark. He says come into it. So what does that suggest to you? Well, the Lord's going to be with them in the ark. So come in with me into the ark. Because everything else is going to be judged. It's going to be cut off from me. So he invites him to come into the ark. And the Lord again alludes to the righteous stature of Noah, which is not in himself, it's in the grace of God and Noah's faith and what God has revealed. He says, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation, in this corrupt world, you're the last person left with your family. And there's no way that what we've seen about Noah so far that we would expect Noah's going to say, no, I'm not going to come in. (laughs) Matter of fact, I think they probably kind of ran in if it started raining and they got in there as quickly as they could. But you know what? Again, it seems that others in that generation, if he was preaching, they at least had the opportunity to hear and repent and believe. Again, according to Peter, he's a preacher of righteousness. He'd been warning people for what we believe to be a a, a whole century. None of us is even going to live that long. Well, probably not. Maybe, Maybe one or two. But Peter also wrote that the whole time that the ark was being constructed, God was exercising long-suffering. It was God's period of grace. But again, no one heeded the message. Noah and his families are the only ones that enter the ark, the only ones that go in, the only ones that receive God's invitation. Noah had zero converts. Well, the Lord adds another instruction here about the gathering of the animals. He's said to bring them in two by two, and the same groups of animals are mentioned here as it were mentioned in creation. Here he's he's to bring in the male and female of every kind, birds and animals and creeping things, those three groups. They're to come into the ark, but now he adds something in chapter seven, you shall take with with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. Then he goes on and repeats two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So seven uh, of each of the birds, uh, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Now so this indicates something else to us here that God must have communicated to the godly seed that certain animals are acceptable for sacrifice. And so they're clean, they're pure before the Lord. And so there will be a need to have more of that group of animals than others because some of them are going to be sacrificed after the flood is over. And his purpose in collecting all of these animals is to survive, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. So he's got to preserve the same groups that he created in the the original creation. Now, we're told here that this occurs one week before the flood, verse 4. After seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. Okay, so Noah, still in conformity with the word of God, 600 years old, and the horses implies, uh, we're told in chapter 5, he's 500, and now it's, he's 600, so a century for all this to take place and Noah's obedience and the commencement of the flood begins in verse 7 <clears throat> So Noah with his sons his wife his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals of animals that are unclean of birds of everything that creeps on the earth two by two they went into the ark to go, to Noah male and females God had commanded Noah there again is obedience They came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So Noah begins loading the animals Uh, into the ark. He's obedient to what God has said. The flood is going to commence in a week's time. I would imagine it would take that long uh, to get the animals in, in their places. And the specific day is marked that begins the greatest cataclysm of all time. We're told here that the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Well, no doubt that refers to great uh, subterranean rivers and bases that were beneath the surface of the earth God causing them to burst up through the ground like uh, huge geysers and these words also remind us of the first day of creation as God brought about the watery deep same words from which the earth was formed so now instead of forming the earth he's destroying the earth He's bringing it back into a sense its original creative form to start all over again. We're told that the windows of heaven are open and it begins to pour down rain. Now, obviously, there aren't windows in the heavens, but it's a way of saying, you know, uh, it, it starts raining. You don't open your windows. You close them to keep the water out. But imagine if a room in your house was full of water, somebody opened the window from outside and, and how that would just gush out. And this is what's happening. And what we believe is likely that the waters that God had separated above and perhaps a, a, a water vapor canopy that created kind of a terrarium effect upon the earth, that the Lord was letting those waters now return to the earth, and imagine how it would shower down. Now, think of the worst rainfall you have ever experienced. I can think of two times. One was uh, at the memorial service of Stu Morgan. It rained cats and dogs. And then when we went to India and we went out the door of the airport, it was like a monsoon and you could physically feel a wall of water and humidity when you walked out the doors. And that's probably nowhere near what it was like when the flood occurred. Can you imagine uh, what the people were thinking when all this happened? Water flowing up from the earth below and falling down in torrents from the sky above for 40 days and 40 nights. We complain after one day. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights. So imagine the horror of the people as everything that Noah has been predicting and preaching begins to happen. But Noah, of course, and his family are safe within the ark. He's in there, uh, and he's safe. <clears throat> now, verse 13, we kind of have a, a repetition of all this. On the very same day, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing, that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh, and which is the breath of life to preserve it. So those that entered, male and female, all of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded him. So again, the obedience of Noah is stressed here. When the last animals on board, Noah, his wife his sons and their wives, they're all secure. God shuts the door. It says, the Lord shut them in. Perhaps Noah and them didn't even draw the door shut. The Lord shut it. The Lord sealed it. And when the Lord shut that door, he was with the faithful few to help them through, through the, the, uh, the scourge of the flood. But once that door was closed, it could not be reopened. No matter how hard the corrupt tried to get in. And folks, I imagine there was screaming and there was crying and there was scratching and there was pounding and there was everything that they could try to get in that ark. It was too late. The judgment had come. So that leads us then to the final scene of utter destruction in verses 17 to 24. And here we see that through the the, the thorough cleansing of the earth's corruption. Now, the flood was on the earth 40 days. In other words, the rain coming down, the flood's going up. And notice the repetition of certain words that give us the, the chaos of this water constantly rising every day for 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. The ark was moved about on the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, or over 20 feet, upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in his nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, and birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. And again, note how the deadly rising waters are described. The word prevailed is used three times, increased two times, greatly three times, the waters five times, constantly going higher and higher and higher, less and less ground to flee to. And the verb to rise up or to prevail is used elsewhere, in God's word, of triumph in battle. And prior to the flood, the ungodly mighty men, the men of renown, prevailed upon the earth. But now the floodwaters cannot be stopped and they will prevail over the whole earth like a mighty, triumphant warrior. The waters rose above the highest hill, at least 20 feet, and these hills would not be the excessive height of mountains that we see today. Um, I believe that some of the mountain ranges were actually created uh, through the effects of the flood, but the the depth of the flood would still have to be thousands of feet to cover the highest hills. And we won't take the time this morning, but there are a number of words in this passage here that parallel the Hebrew words in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, that show the increase of the wickedness of men. And those same words are now showing the destruction of that wickedness by God. So the punishment of God reflects the depth of the crime and the corruption of humanity. And it climaxes here with the removal of the breath of life, the utter destruction of those outside the ark. The Lord removes the breath of life that he gave in the original creation and the result is that every living creature on the land and in the air died the thoroughness of god's cleansing the earth of its violence its corruption its wickedness is graphically evidenced but the lord spares the faithful remnant he's not done with humanity yet in verse 23b, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. So God in his mercy and grace started all over. He would have been just and right to wipe everybody out and just forget about it, but he didn't. He had to fulfill his word. He had to fulfill his promise. He had to build up his seed in the future. It's interesting here that the noun formed from the verb remained, is the English word remnant. So throughout the Bible, we see the Lord delivering over and over again a faithful few, a remnant. And even when it's reduced to just one family, the Lord delivers according to his word. God has had to judge the wicked for their sin, but his grace prevails in the lives of those who trust his deliverance and obey his directives. And that's what he wants to see from us. So let's draw a few applications here. First of all, we look at all that corruption and that violence, and we see that the corruption of sin is deep-seated in the human soul. Every human being is still born corrupt in the eyes of God. And that is why he fulfilled his promise of the seed by sending Christ into the world to deliver us from our sin. So this morning, first of all, do you believe that you are corrupt? That you're actually like those people that were shut out of the ark in your natural state and in your active state? Because we don't like to think in those terms. We don't like to think that we're corrupt, that we do stuff that's wrong, that we're not perfect, that we're sinful creatures, and that we can't be saved by anything we think good that we do. So this morning, have you personally received Jesus and entered the ark of his salvation by faith? That's why uh, Noah was saved, because he trusted the way of God. We also see here that the judgment... of God against sin is just and thorough, and no human being is going to escape it. Just as those people did not escape back then, you will not escape today. If you don't enter the ark of the Lord's salvation through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you also will be destroyed. You will be exempt from the kingdom of God. If one will not accept God's invitation to enter the ark of mercy and salvation, You'll be shut off. he will be shut out from eternity and have to pay the penalty of your own sin. So this morning, are you shut in God's mercy and grace by trusting Christ? Or are you shut out in your rebellion and your rejection of the truth? You're only on one side or the other. You're in or you're out. There's no in between. And finally this morning, we too live in a corrupt and violent world. We were once part of it. We've been saved out of it. And we need Christians to stand up like Noah in his day in the midst of that corruption. We need to be righteous and blameless and walk with the Lord today as Noah did in his day. And thus by our very lives, we will condemn the wickedness of the world and hopefully be used of God to draw some people to him. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning, shall we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful once again today for the truth of your word. There are many, Lord, today that would probably mock at this story, say it's impossible, say it's a fairy tale, wonder how God could destroy so many people, and Lord, they don't realize that all of us really deserve uh, Your judgment because of our sin, of our waywardness, our willfulness, our going our own way, our doing our own thing. So, Lord, help us understand Your just judgment upon sin. And Lord, help us understand that the only way to accept uh, to uh, escape it is to come to Christ to trust his sacrifice, to enter the ark of salvation that he provided. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's not sure of their relationship to God, help them to realize that they are shut out of relationship until they repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Help them to realize that only in him are they safe in the ark of your salvation. And Lord, if there's someone that you've uh, spoken to today, we pray that they would seek out myself or someone else that they know to help them come to that place of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as your people to stand up for what is true and good and right in this wicked age in which we live and be a shining example of the salvation of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, Amen.